Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. I invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings chapter 19. And I, I realized last week I think I had the wrong like chapter or the wrong book on the screen. And so I got home and my kids were like, we're so confused where you were. And I was like, okay, 1 Kings 19 is where we're at today. We're continuing our um, sermon series in encountering the Holy One, looking at people who encountered God in incredible ways. And last week we handled a, a very challenging one. And what does it look like to encounter God when we're filled with pride? And that was the story of Uzziah that Brian mentioned a few minutes ago. This morning, um, we are going to look at dealing with discouragement. And we're going to look specifically at a prophet, and his name is Elijah, Eliyahu in Hebrew. And, and Elijah is one of these characters that if you read through the scriptures, there's like story after story that you're like, what? And then what? There's a lot of fire in Elijah's ministry, like calls down fire. We're going to talk about fire, brief moment today. But when we look at people like Elijah, we can tend to look at them as, oh my, he is the prophet. Like he's one of those big prophets. Like Elijah and Moses in the Older Testament are two really, really big name people. And we could spend our time in 1 Kings 18, which we're going to glance over today. And you could see there how, how Elijah prays to Yahweh and calls down fire from heaven and it comes. And that's an incredible story and I invite you to go back and read it later. But we're going to spend most of our time this morning focusing on what happens after that. In 1 Kings chapter 19, when he deals with the death threat on his life, and how does he trust God in the middle of this? But before we jump into that, I want to place what we're going to study in context. Um, the book of 1 Kings, and, and it's really helpful to do this, by the way, if you, uh, if you go to study or read any book, it's helpful to read, okay, what's this book about? What's the book trying to teach us? When was it written? To whom was it written? And the book of First and Second Kings, there originally one scroll that was put together, later subdivided, same text, just divided up differently and added chapters and verses and stuff in later times. It was written most likely around 560 to 550 BCE, which may not mean anything to you and that's absolutely fine. But what I want you to know what is significant about that is in 586, so this would be 20 to 30 years before the writing of this book, um, the lower um, area of Judah was taken into captivity. So in 722 BCE, Israel, the northern part of um, Israel, the, those tribes are taken into captivity by the Assyrians. In 586, um, Judah is taken into Babylon in captivity. And that's when you get the story of Daniel and all of those, Jeremiah, Isaiah, all those prophets are kind of ministering around that time. And then after that time, you have in the 550s, 560s, well, 560 to 550 because we're counting downwards, um, you have this being written. And so it's interesting it, b because it's being written for some purposes. And one of the reasons is to give a, a current a historical account of what's going on with the kings of Judah and with the kings of Israel. But you can imagine that if you're a person who has been exiled to Babylon, you're going, God, why am I here? Like, what are you doing in the midst of this? You promised us a land. You promised us a blessing. You promised a king to forever sit upon the throne of Israel. And now we're hundreds of miles away in a different area of the local region. They're, they're, they're over in Babylon. They are in captivity. They are experiencing exile. And they're going, but God, what? Like, did you forget about your promise? And part of the reason 1 Kings is written is to give a history of what, what happened. It's also to give them a, here's how you got there answer. Like, so for the king who's saying, why are we here? Then they know, okay, here is how our people got to this point. In fact, I love the way that the Moody Bible Commentary talks about the, the book's purpose. Um, they give three themes that highlight the book of First and Second Kings purpose. And they say this, it's to give a renewed opportunity to fear God, to live in devotion to him, 
and to look for the messianic king. Because even though they're in Babylon, that's not the end of the story. And God is giving them all of these reminders of here's how I worked, here's how I worked, here's how I worked, here's what happened because of this and this and this. But by the way, I've not forgotten you. I will come back. There will be a king who will rule, who will reign, who will deliver. And that's what's kind of going on in the middle of the original hearers of this book of Kings. Um, And so as we look at this today, we look at uh, the prophet Elijah. And I love it, as I said before, because um, the Bible does not shy away from talking about the difficult things that happen for many of its characters. You might think if you're writing a book and you wanted to give your best foot forward, you're writing your memoir or your autobiography, you would, you'd probably want to intentionally omit a few things in your life because 50 years from now, someone's going to read it and they don't want, you don't want them to think this about you. But the Bible just puts it all out there. And it talks about how a people broken and in need of a redeemer, even people like Elijah who have incredible ministry, who have incredible power, come to various moments where they're kind of at the end of themselves. And they have to learn, Lord, where do I go from here? So, uh, as we get into 1 Kings 19, here's a quick recap for those of you who may not know the story. Uh, And that's absolutely right, all right, if you do not know the story. How did Elijah get here? Well, there's a guy by the name of King Ahab who comes on the scene. He's a pretty wicked person. What he does is he actually introduces what's called Baal worship into the land of, of, Isra- of, land of Israel in, in an incredible way. So this is happening somewhere in the, I should have it right here. This is actually happening somewhere. It's not happening in the 500s. It's happening in the, in the 800s uh, BCE, I believe it is. And he's introducing Baal worship. In Baal worship, Baal was a Canaanite fertility god. Uh, it, it becomes a god uh, along with Asherah and Molech that the people of Israel were led down the path to worship. And so here's a, a significant um, temple to Baal that we have archaeologically at a place called Shechem. And here's a standing stone that the people would have gone up to and they would have engaged in worship around these things and they would have lifted up the name of Baal instead of the name of Yahweh. And one of the things about Ahab that we learn in the scripture is that um, while other people introduced wickedness and evil to the Israelites, this is the way that 1 Kings um, 21 says it, it says, there was no one like Ahab who devoted himself to do what was evil in the Lord's sight because his wife Jezebel incited him. So what he does is he marries a Sidonian princess and she comes from the area where Baal is the chief god and she brings Baal into this thing. So number one, don't marry someone who's not of the same religion as you because it leads to a whole lot of problems that God talks about. Um, But he does this, Jezebel comes in, she incites him and incites all the people to engage in worship of Baal. So they had all these various temples. And in in fact, one of the places where they would have um, worship of Baal is at a place called Mount Carmel, which we'll talk about in just a minute. So this is kind of who Ahab is. And Elijah comes on the scene because he's a prophet during this time. Elijah, um, so in this in this map right here, this is the Jordan River Valley running down the central part of your, uh, of your screen. On the east side of it, you have this whole area of Gilead. And you have places called Abu Humus, and you have Jabesh Gilead, and a couple of other places. And um, Elijah is from somewhere over in here, where Ahab is engaged in ruling as king is over here in Samaria. So that's where he lives. Um, there's this showdown that happens on Mount Carmel, and it's up in this range over here on the northwest side of our map. So <clears throat> we're introduced to this guy by the name of Elijah, who quickly becomes a, um, a thorn in Ahab's side. And uh, he's from a place, Elijah's from a place, pro- one of the likely locations is Abu Hamas. Here's what it looks like. You can kind of see it's a, it's a beautiful area. Um, and so you have this showdown that goes on then in the ensuing chapters. Um, in 
chapter 17 of 1 Kings, in verse 1, it says that Elijah, the Tishbite prophet, tells Ahab, uh, there's going to be no dew or rain until um, my command. And you might be like, why does a prophet come onto the scene and say there's no dew or rain? And Elijah is, is, is a man of the text. And if you want to look it up later, you can go to Deuteronomy 11, verses 16 and 17, where God talks to Israel about, hey, if you forsake me, if you go and you worship all these different things, there will be no dew or rain. So Elijah comes on the scene to say, hey, you are spiritually far away from God. And because you're spiritually far away from God, there's going to be no dew or rain. And it becomes a... a a visual picture of what is going on in the Israelites' hearts. There's no dew or rain because you're far from God. You've, you've left the one who actually sustains you. And so there's going to be no dew or rain. So that's what happens in um, chapter 17. And we find out in verse 7 of that chapter that there's no rain and that all these wadis, these dry riverbeds, they, they completely dry up. There's no rain anywhere. They're trying to figure out how are we going to have enough um, food and grass to feed our cattle? How are we going to feed our sheep? How are we going to sustain ourselves? And it's getting pretty desperate <clears throat> to the point that Ahab sends people to various places around in the region to say, is Elijah there? Is Elijah there? Because it was Elijah who kicked this whole thing off to begin with. In chapter 18, God tells Elijah, I want you to go and I want you to have a meeting with Ahab. And Ahab's looking for him. And in verses 16 and through 18 of chapter 18, um, they see each other. And the king, Ahab, says, is that you, destroyer of Israel? And Elijah replies, I have not destroyed Israel, but you and your father's house um, have because you have abandoned the Lord's commands and you have followed the Baals. You followed all these pagan gods. It's not me who has destroyed Israel, king. It's you. You've brought in all this other worship. You've sanctioned it. You have pushed it. And this sets up for an incredible showdown on a place called Mount Carmel, a beautiful area. This is um, on the side of Mount Carmel, most likely where the big showdown with the prophets of Baal and the fire from heaven all that happens is, is the traditional place is right here, and it's likely on the side of the hill based upon various ge geographical features. Here's a, um, a zoom in of that. This is the traditional site of Elijah's sacrifice. So it comes, apart, it comes one day <clears throat> where Elijah, after he's talking to Ahab that time, he says, let's figure out, let's figure out whose God is true. Right? I, I've told you before that one of the predominant questions that, that the Bible is answering is not, um, is not, is there a God? Because all the people in the original context believed in gods. That was not a problem. The question is, is which God do you serve? And Elijah is going to basically say, you serve the one, the true God. And there becomes this showdown on Mount Carmel where 450 prophets of Baal spend a whole bunch of time building an altar and trying to get Baal to answer with fire. And then Elijah, he's there. He gathers stones. He puts them together. He puts the offering on it. He puts water on it and water on it and water on it. And if you want something to burn, you don't pour water on it. And he prays. And as he prays, God sends fire from heaven, basically saying, Yahweh is God. Baal is an imposter. Baal is a fake. Baal cannot do anything. Baal can't bring the rain. Baal can't feed you. Baal can't do any of those things. Only Yahweh can. And so you come to this part, and uh, Elijah, there's this big success. There's this big high day on Mount Carmel. It's a great story. Go read it. There's a whole lot of details I just skipped over for the sake of time. What happens after that is they go from this area where they're at up here in the northwest part of your screen. This is the Jezreel Valley. And um, Elijah prays. Rain comes. They've slaughtered. They, they've killed all the prophets of Baal. And <clears throat> so it's like a, it's a crazy victory and a crazy thing that's happened. And then he tells Ahab, I want you to go down to Jezreel where one of the palaces are. And I want you to go there because rain is coming. And if you don't leave now, you're not going to get across this valley without getting your wheels stuck. This power of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord comes upon Elijah and he outruns the king, the text says, as the king 
king is taking his chariot there. Elijah outruns him to this place called Jezreel. We come here. Here's what it looks like today. This is the aerial view, view of the tell of Jezreel. The ancient city is right here. Mount Gilboa is right here. So they're meeting there, and now we enter our actual passage. So you can kind of feel the, the, the tension has built up, and it's built up, and it's built up. There's been great victory, and now we read from God's word in 1 Kings chapter 19. I invite you to rise with me in body or in spirit for the reading of the word of God. <coughs> Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, may the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like the one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah became afraid, and immediately he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba, that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there. But he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough. Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then he lay down, and he slept under the broom tree. Suddenly, an angel touched him. The angel told him, get up and eat. Then he looked, and there at his head <clears throat> was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and he drank and he lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord returned for the second time and touched him. He said, get up and eat or the journey will be too much for you. So he got up, he ate and drank. Then on the strength from that food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. He entered a cave there and he spent the night. Then the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord of hosts, but the Israelites, they, they've abandoned your covenants, they've torn down your altars, and they've killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord passed by, a great mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle. He went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, he said. He replied, but the Israelites, they've abandoned your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're looking for me to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, go and return by the way you came to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you are to anoint Hazael as king over Aram. You are to anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Avel Mecholah, as prophet in your place. Then Jehu will be put to death. Then Jehu will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Jehu. But I will leave 7,000 in Israel. Every knee that has not bound, bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word as we continue to, as we continue to study. I pray that you would help us to learn in order to live increasingly for your honor and for your glory in the context in which you've placed us. God, thank you for being enough for us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So, you have this great, incredible victory on a place called Mount Carmel where, where Elijah posited the question, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Here's the thing, as we read, 
what happens in the first couple of verses here is while, while there's great victory on the mountain and there's some defeat of the prophets of Baal, as they go back down the mountain and they go to Jezreel, <clears throat> Ahab tells Jezebel everything Elijah had done, how he killed all the prophets with the sword. And notice who comes out in full force here. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, may the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like one of them by this time tomorrow. So great big victorious mountaintop experience only to be told by the queen of the land, you are dead meat, literally. Now, he's just experienced an incredible victory. But I love how the text doesn't like hide how he feels about this. In fact, it can sometimes just take the smallest comment here or the smallest intimidation here to turn any one of us with our eyes fixed on the Lord to, to, to move us to a place of, I have to protect. I, I have to do something here in order to make sure that I'm okay. And what we find is that, I, I love the way the, the text writes it in verse 3, Elijah became afraid. A very normal reaction, but here's what stemmed out of his fear. He immediately ran for his life. So imagine you've, you've been the one to, to champion the word of the Lord, and you've been the one to say, Yahweh is the Lord, worship him. And you have one person, albeit a very important person, a very powerful person, say, you're going to be dead by this time tomorrow. She says it, may the gods punish me. <laughs> like the, the gods that, that he doesn't even believe in, may the gods punish me, she says, um, if you're not dead by tomorrow. And what does he do? He fears because his eyes are taken off God and they're placed on a situation and then he begins to run. And he begins to run and he begins to run. Um, just geographically here, no, notice what happens. Elijah became afraid and he immediately ran for his life. He came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah. He left his servant there. He went into a day's journey into the wilderness and he sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die. So here's what he's doing. Here's a broom tree that he's gonna go sit under. This is a broom tree in the southern part, portion of Israel. So he finds a little bit of shelter there in which the Lord sustains him with a couple of things. But I want you to see how far he actually traveled. Up here in the north part of, your, um, of this Google earth map, you have the Jezreel Valley. He started up here, he runs all the way to Beersheba. That's not a small run. You might run to like your neighbor's house or to a friend's house or maybe to the other side of, of the city. He's running a long ways. This is not a small travel. Not only that, <clears throat> he comes to Beersheba and he goes out a day into the wilderness. So he presumably heads a little bit south. And wilderness here is a very dry and barren existence. I'll show you a photo in a minute. Um, but he's eventually going to be going from this place called Beersheba all the way down here to Horeb, the mountain of God. It's also known by the name Sinai. Um, the traditional site of it is Jebel Musa, and I'll show you a photo of that. But it's an incredible journey. It's not a small thing. In fact, the first part of his journey is like about 150 miles. And the second leg of his journey from Beersheba all the way down to Sinai is about 250 miles. So he's going about 400 miles to try, number one, to get away from Jezebel. But then there's another reason why he's also headed that way. So here's kind of the land that he's crossing through. This is the Nahal Zin. This is part of the land that Elijah would have gone through. You can see it's dry. You can see it's really hard to live here. This is not a kind, friendly place with water everywhere and food aplenty. This is the kind of wilderness where you have to be sustained by God. And it's at a broom tree somewhere south of Beersheba that God meets him. And the angel comes to him and he, and he touches him after he's cried out to the Lord. And he says, I want you to get up and I want you to eat. Right? So um, he goes out this full day's journey into the wilderness. He says, God, he, he prays he might die. He says, Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my father's. He's anticipating the Lord would take his life. He's anticipating my days as a prophet are done. I'm done for. They want to kill me. They're opposed against me. 
what do I do now? And in this wilderness, I want you to notice how, how the angel approaches him. The angel touches him, and he tells him to get up and eat, right? He doesn't say, get up, I have a word. First thing he says is, get up, you need some food. Get up and eat. He looked there at his head was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and he drank and he lay down again. Here's a guy going through a lot of despair, a lot of discouragement, and one of, well, two of the ways that the Lord ministers to him initially are he lets him sleep and he gives him food and drink, right? When we're walking through discouraging times like this, it's really important to check our, check our just like natural daily rhythms. Are we eating? Are we sleeping? God is going to meet him and God is going to give him a word, but he knows that he has a journey ahead of him and he needs to be well sustained for this journey. So he ate, he drank, he lay down again. Verse seven says, um, the angel of the Lord returned for a second time and he touched him and he said, get up and eat or the journey will be too much for you. So Elijah got up, he ate, he drank and then on the strength from that food, he walked 40 days, 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God and he entered a cave there and he spent the night. So here's where he's at. Uh, Jebel Musa, over here on the right-hand side of this photo, that is the traditional site of where um, Elijah would have been. It's a traditional site of where um, Moses met the Lord in the book of Exodus. Um, there's a couple of other you know, commentaries that, that might argue for a different mountain peak or whatever, but this is the general mountain range. This is the Sinai mountain range. And if you want to get a glimpse of what it looks like, what life looks like when you've finally reached Sinai, and you're looking out over the land, here's an incredible photo. And you can see it's rocky, and it's dry, it's harsh, and it's here in, in his discouragement, and his depression, that God continues to meet with him. He continues to meet with Elijah. And this is what happens in uh, verse 9. The, he entered a cave, he spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him. And notice what God says. God is very, like, terse in this. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? I, I love the way that Dr. Tim Keller um, uh, commented on this in one of his messages on this passage. He says, when, when God asks a question, it's not so that God gets the answer. God already knows the answer. When he asks a question like, what are you doing here, Elijah? He's wanting Elijah to ask himself the question, what am I doing here? Right? God, God's omniscient. He, does, he knows everything. He does not need to know why he's there, but Elijah needs to know why he's there. Notice how Elijah responds. He replied, verse 10, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, but the Israelites, they've abandoned your covenant, they've torn down your altars, they've killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. You can feel that, right? Like, he is at the end of his rope. He does not know what to do. <clears throat> he's being more or less hunted by Jezebel. And he's 400 miles away, and he's still afraid for his life. But, but notice how he frames this. Like, in the last chapter, he was saying, if uh, Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. As Yahweh asks him this question, what are you doing here? Notice how he uses first-person pronouns, right? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord of hosts. But the Israelites, they have abandoned your altar. They've torn down, or they've abandoned your covenant. They've torn down your altar, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. And they are looking for me to take my life. How does he feel? Not only is he discouraged, not only is he being hunted for his life, he is feeling like he is the only one. It's interesting because if you back up a couple of chapters, I didn't tell you this earlier, but as he meets King Ahab's servant, as he gets ready to reintroduce himself after three years of famine to the king who's been looking for him, um, the servant tells him, I, I have rescued prophets of the Lord. There are people who are safe because I am feeding them. 
I'm sheltering them, I'm keeping them away from Jezebel, and I can't remember exactly how many it is off the top of my head, but there's several thousand, I believe it is, Someone go back and look at that, and you can, you can find the correct number. Uh, there's several thousand there who God has preserved through other people to be his witnesses in the region of Israel. And so when Elijah says, I alone, I alone am left, I am zealous for God, he's missing a very important part. He's not the only one. But his tunnel vision has led to fear and has led to self-preservation and he's taken his eyes off of what is God doing and how is God going to write this story and he's placed himself at the center of the story. Now he has a very important part to play. I don't deny that. But when he places himself at the center part of the story, he neglects certain facts that he has already been told. Namely, he's not alone. One of the hardest things for, for us when we experience things like um, depression or we experience things like discouragement is many times we will want to pull away and we will want to isolate ourselves. And it's one of the things that we have to be very careful not to do. That does not mean we have to share our, our challenges and struggles with the entire world. But we need godly people to speak into our life to say, you know what? You are not alone. I'm here with you. You know what? You think this about God? Let me tell you about what God says about this. I, trust me, I, I get it. And, and this is not at all throwing shade on any one of us who has experienced incredible discouragement, depression, or anything like that. Because many of us have, right? I've been through discouraging moments. And I go... What do I do with this? And one of God's ways to help bring better health to us is sleep, eat, and then he asks Elijah, why are you here? And we begin to wrestle with God on, wait, why am I here? And we begin to pick apart with God's help and many times the help of other godly people in our life, wait, what is true versus what do I feel? Because our feelings are real, but they're not always true, right? One of my mentors always used to describe feelings as the caboose on a train. We, our, our train is led by the Lord, and truth is determined by him, and reality is determined by him. But the way we feel about things, if we lead by our emotions, what will inevitably happen is we'll go through this up and down experience with every decision we have in our life, because emotions are really, really awesome and they're important. God made us with emotions. He made us, um, he made us an integrated being of, of soul, spirit, and body. But when we lead by our emotions, we can often lose what's true. And when we lose what's true, we get things out of whack. And Elijah here has forgotten what's true. Is he the only prophet? No. Is God still working with the people who are stubborn and who don't want to trust him and who want to worship Baal? Yes. Will God be faithful? Yes. Does Elijah have a part? Yes. But it's important for Elijah to see that he's not the only one. Let's keep reading though. Verse 11, <clears throat> he said, go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence, the Lord says. At that moment, just imagine this. You're on this mountain. You're in a cleft of a rock. At that moment, the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering cliffs before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. Have you been in mighty wind before? And you know what it's like to be almost pushed along and you're holding on to things? God wasn't in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. Have you ever felt the earth shake and you're going... What's going on here? The power of the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire. Elijah knows about fire. Fire just came down from heaven a few, you know, month or so earlier. And he experienced the Lord answering through fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice. A soft whisper. And it's the soft whisper that prompts Elijah to cover his face with his mantle, to go out 
and to stand at the entrance of the cave. And it's when he goes and he stands out in this entrance of the cave, the voice says to him again, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now in the scripture, we find that there are times when God appears and it manifests like a wind. There are times when God appears and it manifests like an earthquake. There's times when God appears and it manifests like a like, like fire. And then there's another way that God often appears. There's a whisper. There's a still, small voice, your translation might say. When I think of Elijah, I think of a guy who's pretty, you know, big and bombastic. You know, you, you read a lot of his stories, and you're like, and he's doing that, wow. And he's doing that, wow. And you read this, and it almost takes me off guard. It's not all the wow stuff that the Lord used to capture the attention again of Elijah. It's this still, soft whisper. And then Elijah goes out, and the Lord speaks to him. As he goes out there, the Lord says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? You can kind of think about, you know, Adam and Eve in the garden after they sinned. The Lord comes down, he says, Adam, where are you? Maybe you can imagine, um, well, Saul on the road to Damascus was a bit of a, um, you know, like blinded him and then spoke to him. Um, there's Hannah who, um, who gives birth to a prophet by the name of Samuel. And Samuel's a young boy growing up in the temple and he hears um, his name being called and he goes to Eli the priest and Eli's like, I didn't call you. And it takes a couple times of this for him to realize that it's through a soft calling of his name that the Lord says, Samuel, Samuel. God uses many different ways to get his people's attention. Yours may not be through something dramatic like Jonah in the fish. It may be through something very, very normal. But God's word to his people is vital for them to know who he is and who they are. And here God is probing Elijah's purpose. Why are you here? Notice what Elijah says. You may have heard this before. I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, he replied. But the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, tore down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're looking for me to take my life. You could underline all the first person pronouns again. I've been zealous. I alone am left. They're looking to take my life. So God asked the same question both times. Elijah has the same response both times. And when you see the same question and the same response, it's like, I don't feel like we're getting anywhere here. I feel like we're kind of stuck. Verse 15 helps us understand what the Lord does next. Then the Lord said to him, go and return by the way you came to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you're to anoint Hazael as king, you're to anoint Jehu as king over Israel, and Elisha as, uh, as a prophet in your place. What's going on here? Um, some scholars have suggested that this is the decommissioning of Elijah, that this is the transition, the beginning of the transition of Elijah from going to being a prophet of God to needing to realize hey, it's not your story. There's actually going to be people who come after you. And in fact, he tells him, <clears throat> I want you to anoint these people because these people are going to finish what you started. One of Elijah's hardest things to understand was he had a, it was hard for him to see outside of himself. God's prescription for Elijah is to help make him see outside of himself to the point where he's going to actually be given the command to leave the mountain of God. He's going to go down. He's going to go back up to Damascus, which is up on the 
on the east side. It's in Syria. It's on the east side of the Jordan River. It's not a small walk. It's several hundred miles. He's going to go up there, and, and he's going to find this guy by the name of Elisha eventually. And he's going to commission Elisha to continue the ministry that God had given him to do. Not only that, if you read ahead in 2 Kings, uh, Elisha is actually going to be even greater than Elijah. Like, the things that he does are absolutely crazy. So, what's going on with God meeting Elijah? I I love the way one uh, scholar puts it as he summarizes this. He says this, somewhere between exaggerated self-loathing and exaggerated self-importance, both partly the product of selective memory, there's a quiet place where Elijah must rest, content with who he is and what he has done. The key is to remember his past with the Lord. He goes on to say, if the spectacular has not produced final victory, there is no reason for despair. Because the overall strategy was always more long-term and more subtly conceived than Elijah ever imagined. Elijah is zealous for God. And in being zealous for God, he becomes very personally enthralled in this. And it's as if God is saying, I love you, Elijah. You have an awesome purpose. You have served me faithfully. I want you to rest now. I want you to know this is not all upon you. You think you're the only one out there. You think you're the one to convince all of Israel to turn from their ways. And of course, Elijah would love to do that. And, and honestly, as we look out into a world that has forsaken God in so many different ways, we as followers of Jesus might be like, Lord, how would you use me to turn all of their hearts? And here, with a hyper-focused sensitivity on himself and on his role, on what he has to do, and how he interplays with this, God is saying, there is no need for despair because you're not the only player on the team. In fact, I love how he says it. The the overall strategy was always much more long-term and more subtly conceived than Elijah could could imagine. In the text, um, this is a whole other angle on it, which we won't go deep into. In the text, Elijah is being likened as a prophet like Moses. Um, there's several things that Moses does that Elijah does a very similar thing. So it's natural for the reader at the time of this is being read to go, what was Elijah's role? Was he the prophet that was like Moses? And one of the things that's being answered here is he's not the prophet that's like unto Moses. That's, that is ultimately prophesied about in Deuteronomy 18. In fact, he is one of many servants of Yahweh, but there is a prophet coming who is going to fix the actual problems of the people of Israel and Judah and the world. And it's not just that they worship Baal, and it's not just that they want to kill servants of the Lord who who worship the Lord. It's that there is a deep need for an exchanged heart and an exchanged life that can only come about through one who would be the king. The, the, the one who would be the prophet, the priest, and the king on behalf of the people. So Elijah is back here. And just to kind of finish up a quote here, Ian Proven says, From the beginning, it had involved the gentle but devastating whisper as well as the all-consuming fire, the quiet ways of God's normal providence as well as the noisier ways of miraculous intervention. Elijah must be content with being part of the plan, but not the plan itself. No matter how great of a prophet Elijah was, Elijah couldn't do what you and I and the people of Israel needed most. He couldn't save you and me. Salvation is a work of the Lord. And the prophet who would come to be both a priest and a king the Messiah Jesus would be the one who would not only bring a message of the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but he would bring a message to all people. You can find life and you can find hope and you can find healing in me today. The kind of rest that Elijah is looking for is only able to be offered 
by a king who says, come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy and laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. Here you will find rest for your soul. See, the rest that Elijah was looking for from the top of a mountain as he's encountering God, it was hard for him, I think, to get past, they're trying to kill me. And God was wanting to teach him, you can find rest today, but it's not gonna be in your message, it's gonna be in me. So what do we do with a story like this? There's maybe several ways we could seek to apply this. Uh, the, the, the first one I want to just kind of come back to is, I love how God initially responds to Elijah because he responds to him as, a, as an integrated being, as a person who's running and scared for his life, as a person who feels alone and that no one is on his side. He says, rest, eat, sleep. Do you see how God just cares for the practical needs of our lives? Sometimes the best thing we can do is take a nap in an afternoon. Sometimes the best thing we can do is make sure we eat something when we're especially discouraged. Like take, taking care of our bodies, seeing good medical um, health practitioners when needed, that's awesome. But that's not the whole solution with God because we are integrated beings. We, we have a body that needs physical things like sleep. Um, we, we have, in the Israelites, they, they had a spirit that was not at rest with God. They, they had a spirit that was broken by sin and they had experienced the separation from God and what God wants them to experience most is that they can't repair that breach on their own. They need a Messiah who will. And so over and over and over, and I love the picture, you know, how I, Elijah comes to Israel and he's like, there's going to be no rain. And how many times the prophets in the, in the Older Testament say um, that there is, um, there's a water that satisfies. And, and, and Jesus, even on like a great important day of a feast in the fall, he comes and he says, um, if anyone comes to me and is thirsty, I will give him water. And you'll never be thirsty again but we're so accustomed to trying to find ways to satisfy our own spiritual thirst. Like the people went to Baal worship or the people would go to another Canaanite god to worship in order to have rain, in order to have fertility, in order to have kids, in order to have water in food and all these kind of things. And, and God is saying to them and he says to us, you seek all these things, you need to seek first me because you're not gonna find your life in the broken things of life. You'll only find life, life will only make sense spiritually when it's put in the context of the love I have for you and how I have died and I have risen again so that you can have life. And not just life in a small amount, but life forever, life to the full is what Jesus promises. So we, we need to be reminded that as God cares about our bodies and he cares about our spirits and, and he cares about our souls, we, we need to have a, an understanding that our ways are not God's ways. You know, the, the things that God has placed on earth for you and I to do, in fact, Ephesians says that God has prepared works in advance for us to be doing them, right? Like, we, we have purpose in God's economy. We're not innocent bystanders. We're not people of faith who just take a seat and go, well, the Lord is coming and so I can just sit here. No, we're meant to be dependent upon the Lord and active in service to the King of Kings wherever he leads and however he leads. But here's the great thing. The work of salvation, while we are invited to partner with it, it is first and foremost God's work. Maybe you have someone in your life, across your street, maybe you have someone in your family who is far from the Lord right now, and you're burdened for them. God may ask you to engage in certain ways, and in the power of the Spirit, do. But always remember, salvation is God's redemptive initiative. 
And because of that, we can partner with God in whatever he calls you and I to, teaching a Sunday school class, raising a family, engaging in the beautiful and hard thing that's sometimes called marriage, um, being in a church family where not maybe everyone thinks alike about everything. We can engage in all these things, dependent upon God, and say, I'm a part of this team. Lord, what would you have me do? And I am not alone. See, when we deal with discouragement, discouragement is a very real thing, and it often causes us to take our eyes and to place it on all the things around us instead of the one place it should be. And that's upon the perfect sufficiency of Christ, who is your and my life. So, as a result... Because of Jesus' work, number one, I and we can confidently hope in God regardless of my emotions or my circumstances. As a result of the work of God, I can trust and I can rest that God has the whole world in his hands. Amen? Like, God actually has the whole world in his hands. It's not just a song. <laughs> it's a great song, though. Um, and thirdly, as a result, I can rest, and you and I can rest in the reality that we are part of God's plan, but we are not the plan in its entirety. We're part of it, which is how amazing our God is, how broken and how needy we are, that God invites us to be hands and feet to a world. Pray with me, please. Father, we come this morning, and, and some of us even come right now, and we're dealing with discouragement. And God, I thank you for how you practically minister to us in our lives. And God, I, I thank you that you have reminded us that you are always with us. In fact, we don't have to be anxious about anything, Philippians says, because you are with us. We, we, can, we can rest in the fact that we are not alone. And Lord, some of us here need the comfort that comes from your word this morning of that reminder. Some of us here, Lord, need, um, we, we need a fresh encounter with you as we open your word. We need to hear your words and we need to, to understand clearly, Lord, what you have for us to be engaged with. And God, we don't want to be passive, but neither do we want to be presumptive. We want to follow and walk with you in life and in ministry. And so, Lord, for all the places in which you call us to in our world today, would you give each one of us clarity to know how we can be bearers of the message of the grace and forgiveness and love of Jesus to a broken and dying world that's in desperate need of living water. Father, I thank you uh, that you are you are our encourager. God, I thank you that you are our life. I thank you that we have all that we need in Christ. And God, that you have surrounded us with community, that you have not left us physically alone here on this earth, that, that you work not just through individual people, that you work through a corporate body of followers of Jesus called the church. And Lord, may we seek to encourage one another. May we seek to lift one another up. May we seek to be the hands and feet to one another as we go through the, the highs and the lows of life. Lord, for all here who are in need of encouragement today, give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we might encourage them with the words of truth and with the love, the faithful love of Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, 